From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. A quick note to listeners. Today's episode was recorded on Friday, March 13th. The interview is taking place outside of our office due to our mandatory work-from-home policy during the unfolding coronavirus pandemic. We take seriously the safety of our staff and the guests on our podcast. Megan Rapino is a superstar soccer player who's become a global icon for her breathtaking play, her purple-pink hair, and her bold activism. She's a World Cup champion, Olympic gold medalist, and co-captain of the U.S. women's national soccer team. She's also kneeled during the national anthem in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and others to protest police brutality. And she's spoken out in favor of many other progressive causes. Now, she and her U.S. women's national team teammates are demanding equal pay with their male counterparts, and they've taken the issue to court. We'll discuss the latest with this important pay equity lawsuit, the roots of Megan's activism, and what it's like to score a game-winning goal in the World Cup final. Also, disclaimer to listeners that I'm a lifelong soccer player and fan, and this interview is a dream come true. I'll do my best to hold it together. Megan Rapino, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. First off, just want to check in. How are you holding up? I know it's a crazy time for all of us, but I know athletes uh, do a lot of traveling and a lot of interacting with big crowds. Just want to check in. How are you holding up? I'm holding up well. It is indeed (laughs) crazy times. Um, Actually, um, Kristen on my team said it best. She's like, I feel like we need to be taking lots of precautions, but not panicking. And there's a little bit of the opposite happening. So I'm just (laughs) trying to be a responsible citizen. All my appearances have been canceled. All of the social gatherings that I have have been canceled. I'm just kind of pulling up and taking it day by day and trying to do what I can to stop the spread. Well, yes. And as we noted, uh, this is a remote connection for the podcast in order to lower the risk as much as we possibly can. But I have to ask, one of the things that's been proposed, most leagues have now suspended their play, but one of the sort of intermediate proposals is playing behind closed doors. Have you ever played in front of, like as a professional in an empty stadium? I don't think so. Um, We used to do sort of like scrimmages against other national teams. They were literally called closed door matches, you know, way back, but we haven't done those in a long time. So I I can't imagine that. I've been seeing some of the pictures coming out of European soccer and having that, but that might've been a a little bit of a naive approach because that's sort of the assumption that none of the players and none of the staff and (laughs) none of the support staff around any of the teams would have been infected. And as we've seen with, uh, I think uh, it's a Juventus player has contracted the virus, two NBA players have contracted the virus. So it's probably best for all of us to sort of stay away from each other at this point. So obviously it's been a big week in so many ways, including in the sports world, but it was also a big week for the lawsuit that you and your teammates filed. I want to go into the details of the lawsuit, but first let's get a little background for those who may not be familiar with your suit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. Can you just get us oriented? What were the origins of the lawsuit? I mean, the origins of the lawsuit really for us is um, we feel like we've been discriminated against based on our gender. So the the compensation structures and the contracts that we've worked you know so hard to negotiate all of these years really were done under a, a thick steel ceiling, as I like to say. 
the amount of uh, money that we receive for games or um, the revenues that we receive um, are just vastly different from the men. So that's sort of the, the origin of it all. And we've felt for a long time that we've been treated differently and have been kept out of a lot of the earnings that we feel like we deserve. And so last year, around this time, actually, we decided to file a gender discrimination lawsuit. Before that, we had filed an EEOC complaint um, against the Federation. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Yes, exactly. And that sort of ran its course. I feel like the administration change might have had something to do with that, with the uh, directives coming down from the top. But that had sort of run its course. So we just felt like this was the next best step and strongest step that we could take, not only for ourselves, obviously this is, you know, our case in our unique setting, but, you know, we feel a responsibility not only for ourselves and the next generation of soccer players coming, but honestly for for girls and women all over the world. We're in a very unique position where we have, you know, an incredible um, following online. We get a lot of media attention. We were obviously going into a World Cup last year where we were going to have a lot of eyes on us. And we just felt it was you know, our greater duty as women and as people who have an incredible platform in this in this country and in the world to bring light to this issue. Well, it's a powerful example for pay equity in so many industries. But I'm wondering in, in the context of national team soccer in the United States, what are the numbers actually look like? What is what is the discrimination look like? The discrimination looks like when I play a, a similar game to a man, we'll just say like a, a regular friendly and, you know, against, you know, say we both play the number two team in the world. Can't say the number one team because that would mean us playing ourselves. We'll <laughs> say the number two team, um, you know, they would make a, a and, they, and we both win the game. They would make a drastically higher bonus than us. So, you know, the thing that the Federation always says, well, you negotiated these terms and you did so in good faith. And so to go back on it wouldn't be appropriate, but, you know, we were never offered the same compensation structure as the men. And so those agreements that were signed long ago are still binding? They are still binding, yes. Um, I think our CBA is up next year, our collective bargaining agreement, and the men are in the middle of renegotiating theirs at the moment, I believe. Well, you mentioned that the lawsuit was filed in March of 2019, going into a World Cup, a Women's World Cup last summer. And of course, the World Cup brought enormous attention to your lawsuit. A lot of people have pointed to the fact that you were so dominant on the field and how much more powerful that made your case, that you should be paid at least equal with the men, given how much more success you've had than the men's national team. But I'm curious, how much of an impact has your dominance had on this pay equity argument? Does it only matter because you're so good? I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt, obviously. (laughs) But honestly, I mean, I think the excellence of the team from the very first game that the team played decades ago until now is really the most powerful thing. We've been an incredibly successful team on the field. We have four Olympic gold medals, obviously four World Cups with the one last summer. And so I think it's sort of the culmination of the, the life's work of this team that really is the most powerful thing. And then obviously you put it into a world championship. You put it into particularly these times right now, not only in this country, but around the world. And I think that it sort of became a lightning rod um, for a lot of different issues. And and people felt sort of uniquely connected to the team. Everything that we were doing on the field, of course, laying it all out there and, you know, trying our very best on the field and, you know, having a lot of success in that, but also our willingness and, uh, you know, I would say our eagerness to take up these mantles off the field and use, you know, the incredible 
popularity and privilege that we have as athletes in this country. We live in a country that very much glorifies athletes. And so for all that positivity and fame and glory that we get, I think we choose to use that equally off the field in the best way that we can to push ourselves forward, to push the game forward and to be, you know, that inspiration for for women and, and men, frankly, all over the world. Well, there was a sort of confluence of the lawsuit and the World Cup over the summer, but then also this week you had a match, but there was also an important court filing where in a reply brief, the U.S. Soccer Federation argued essentially that men and women soccer players are not performing comparable jobs, that they cite, quote unquote, indisputable science, that it takes, quote, more skill to be a player in the men's game. How did you first find out about these arguments being used by USSF lawyers? And and what was it like to read that type of description of women's soccer? I mean, to be honest, you know, maybe not in these plain words, but the sentiment and the feeling has been felt for a long time, yeah. which is probably, you know, one of the reasons that we've gotten ourselves to this point in filing a gender discrimination lawsuit. We felt the undertones of sexism and misogyny. We felt the undertones of you know, not feeling as valued or not even seeing the potential in the team um, in the same way that the potential of the men's team on and off the field has been felt. But I think I found out online, I'm sure just just like everyone else, I don't think I had, uh, you know, read the brief yet. And then obviously the sort of key quotes were pulled out and got on with our legal team and our PR team. It's just incredibly disappointing. Well, like I said, I, we had, you know, sort of felt the the sentiments, but to know that they would use that in plain language in public is just unbelievable. Like this is an organization and a federation that is charged with growing the game of soccer and, you know, stewarding the game of soccer for all people in this country. And to say that you believe that half of the people when it comes to soccer are just inherently less than the other half to use that argument, I mean, that that sort of, it's just incredible. And then that says to me, like, how are we then thinking about youth soccer? How are we thinking about investment in soccer? What are we thinking about the future of both teams? What are we thinking about the potential of both teams? It's so pervasive into every corner of soccer in this country, you know, bigger than just our national team. But you can see now how over the course of the life of our women's national team, you know, maybe how much has not been captured or, um, you know, maybe the investment wasn't quite there because the belief that we're inherently lesser. I mean, it makes me so sad for girls around the country to to hear that and to see that. I mean, hopefully they're listening to us more than they're listening to them. And we're trying to set a, a better world forward and fight for a better future for them. But it's just astonishing someone would say that out loud. Well, the public outcry was definitely significant, and the USSF boss, Carlos Cordero, first was forced to apologize, I think even it was during your match this week, and then he's just resigned in the last few hours. So do you see this as a sign of progress, that your side is at least winning the public debate? I hope so. I mean, I think that we've long been winning the public debate, Yeah. so I I feel quite confident on that front, but You know, in the same sense, I'll say, I have to admit, it's an incredibly sad day for the whole soccer community to get to the point where, you know, someone's having to resign for making comments like this. I think that's incredibly sad. And it's, you know, a long lasting stain on the Federation. With that said, hopefully this, you know, will be the wake up call that everyone needs. I think we need a complete overhaul of U.S. soccer. Obviously, you know, 
Carlos is the president, so he's going to take the hit for this, and it's his head on the stake. But also, other people should have been reading that brief. Did the general counsel read the brief? Did the committee in charge of the lawsuit read the brief? Has the board read the brief? This is a legal strategy. This wasn't an offhand comment made to someone in an interview. This is the legal strategy that has been deployed in this lawsuit. So there's been a number of eyes on this, and you know it's really shocking and disheartening to know that you know a lot of people have had their eyes on this and have approved this strategy in this lawsuit against us. It's just it's really disappointing. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my first reactions as an attorney was like, I don't know who's going to get blamed for this, but there are a lot of people who saw this before it went out. A lot of eyes. A lot of eyes on that argument, for sure. Well, the area of law that I focus on is protest law. And you and your teammates had a really creative protest this week where you came out during the She Believes tournament wearing your warm-up jerseys inside out so that you couldn't see the U.S. soccer crest. But notably, you could see the four stars representing your four World Cup wins. But I'm curious about this form of very obvious protest. How did you choose this? And why was it so important to do that type of display on the field before the game? I mean, obviously, this all came about, you know, very quickly. The, uh, you know, motions and filings came out a, a day before, a couple of days before, you know, we had been talking about it amongst the group. People are really upset, really upset to have such plain um, and gross language used against us like that. But, you know, we also are professionals and we're trying to do a job. We're preparing for, you know, one of the two biggest events of our lives in the Olympics. And we have very important games coming up. So it's sort of this balance of trying to figure out, like, do we do something? Do we say something? You know, we don't want to expend too much energy on this. We have to focus for the game. So a couple of us were talking just before the game and um, it was kind of floated. What if we just, you know, switch the jerseys inside out, a la Clippers in protest of um, Donald Sterling when all of Hmm. his racist comments came out just to, You know, it's never really in our nature. It's never really a thought for us not to play. We love playing for our country and we love going out there. I think the the strongest thing that we can always do is to perform on the field and to show that no matter what, we're going to do our job and be excellent at it. But this was just something that we felt like we have to say something as a group. And I think there's been a lot in the media. Obviously, we'll be able to speak in the media. We can, you know, get our quotes out there anytime, but a collective statement that no one is okay with this. I think was really powerful. And it just so happened, you know, as we were kind of turning the shirts inside out in the locker room, you know, we all just kind of started to realize that, you know, basically the only thing that was visible was our accomplishments still shining through. Hmm. And that's a little bit cheesy and a little bit corny, but I feel like sometimes those moments just come together and, you know, the higher powers are on our side in some sort of way. And I felt like it was a really strong statement by the group as a collective, which is what this has always been about. Well, it was very powerful image. And I, I think I've already seen online t-shirts that look like inside out soccer jerseys. Um, oh yeah. The, the internets are undefeated always. And they came out with that quick. That was like up, I think before the game. Started. <laughs> it's the best. I got one more question about the lawsuit, but it kind of relates to what I want to talk about next, which is where your activism goes beyond you know, just the women's national team, as as worthy a cause as that is, it's far from the only thing that you've been vocal about. And I'm, I noted some of my colleagues also highlighted for me that the USSF, some of the arguments they were using, the misogynistic logic that they were using in their filings, 
are linked to some of the bills that we're seeing across the country right now trying to police trans kids and prohibit trans and intersex girls from competing in sports. Do you mm-hmm. see some connection between these fights? And, and is there something inherently flawed about this men are just better at sports logic? Yeah, I do. I think it's inherently flawed. I don't understand why we have to exactly compare everything when we understand that there are some differences and that's okay. Let's just celebrate the amazing product that's on the field. I think right now in the country, you know, some people are feeling a comfortability with othering other people. Mm. Obviously with this Trump administration, there's been, you know, a rise in hateful language, a rise in hate crimes, a rise in racist language and homophobic language and misogynistic language. And you know, this sort of MAGA, make America great again, which really just means take us all the way back. And I think that you're seeing that pervasive in in a lot of areas of society. One of the first overt political acts that I can remember you becoming famous for was taking a knee. And again, this is not uh, about the women's national team, and it's not, you know, primarily a movement of white women, but you were compelled to act and to show solidarity regarding police brutality. Can you tell us about your decision to kneel during the national anthem? I think it was the summer of 2016. Um, we had just gone through just such a difficult difficult summer. So many um, public murders caught on tape. I think there was five. You had the Dallas police officers who were gunned down. You know, it was in the news everywhere and just heartbreaking. You know, around the same time, obviously, Colin Kaepernick very courageously started speaking up and using his voice, started protesting. You know, I watch a lot of news and watch a lot of sports as well. And to have two things I was very passionate about kind of collide together It just sort of was a no-brainer for me, to be honest. I didn't deliberate Mm. over it for weeks and weeks and weeks. I actually didn't even, you know, really talk to anyone about it. As soon as I saw what he was doing, um, it just made sense to me. It just, it just clicked. Like, oh yes, of course. Um, And then immediately was like, okay, can I do anything? Obviously, as an athlete, I have games. I go through the national anthem. I just thought that, you know, similar to the times as a gay female athlete or just as a female athlete that I've asked people to stand with me and be my ally. I thought that it's the very least that I can do to stand with Colin and try to bring this conversation maybe to a different subset of people, or at least, you know, amplify the conversation and the message that he was um, trying to get across with his kneeling. So I just felt like there's no reason for me not to do it. Um, And, you know, hopefully this will bring the conversation to more people. I think it was definitely a powerful show of solidarity to be taking a knee as well, especially given the backlash that so many of those NFL and also NBA players have faced. You know, Mm -hmm. we've heard this critique since at least the 60s, probably before, where people say, you know, athletes should just be athletes. We don't want to get into political debates. We should keep all these things separate. And this year in the Olympics, where you're expected to feature on the women's national team, the Olympics has banned athlete activism or signs of protest. How did you feel when you heard about this rule? Are you planning to abide by it? Well, my wheels started turning, that's for sure. <laughs> that's one way to get athletes to protest, tell them not to. <laughs> protest. Tell them that they can't. I mean, it, it was so frustrating. I, you know, immediately I went to put myself in that room where those decisions were made or that directive was going to be handed down and, and just thought, who was in that room? What are they doing? And I think, you know, with all the protests and with all the backlash that comes from all of these protests, I always think to myself, What if we put that energy toward what the people are saying? Okay, maybe you don't like the form of the protest. Nobody's ever liked any form of protest whatsoever, peaceful or otherwise. So what if we put all of our energy towards 
what the message actually is, what the message of Colin Kaepernick was, what the message of Muhammad Ali was, the message of Tommy Smith and John Carlos, all of these athletes who have so courageously stuck their neck out. Um, imagine if we had people in the room who were trying to find the solution. And for these governing bodies, the IOC, maybe they should talk to the countries that are committing the human rights abuses that people are then protesting about. Maybe they should talk to them instead of talking about us who are protesting what's clearly a harm to society. So it's very frustrating, but you know, I don't think they're going to see any less protests because of it, that's for sure. We'll all be watching with interest, assuming the games go forward. But among all these other things that you've been vocal about, you mentioned being a gay athlete. You've become a real queer icon. I mean, you're a hero to so many kids, including my five-year-old. And at the same time, you're unapologetically and very publicly queer. You and your partner, Sue Bird, were the first openly gay couple to be featured on the cover of ESPN, the magazine's body issue. Is breaking barriers for the LGBTQ community a a priority for you? And has it always been consciously a part of your efforts? It's very much a priority for me. And I think, you know, since probably my early 20s, kind of right out of college, and even in college, it was always extremely important for me to live my life very loud and very open. And that doesn't always mean waving the rainbow flag everywhere, but it's like, I don't need to wave the rainbow flag because when I walk in the room, I'm a very you know proud gay woman walking into that room. So I feel like I have an incredible amount of privilege living the life that I do, playing on the women's national team, having that sort of platform. And you know I've just seen how much impact I've been able to have just by saying, yes, I'm gay, or just by standing up for people's rights or being vocal about it or being a public person who's out. I have people coming up to me all the time, old, young, you know, male, female, everybody saying that I gave them the courage to tell their family or to live the way that they were born or to just accept themselves a little more. Honestly, I feel like it's the very least that I can do. I am very lucky to live the life I do and to, in a lot of ways, be sheltered and shielded from a lot of the ugly homophobia that's still exist today. And so if I can live out and proud and just be who I am, I think that that's the the only way that I know how to live is to, to live hard and to be very out and proud about it. Well, it's definitely a powerful example and normalizing in such an important way. Mm-hmm. Children of all genders and gender expressions were watching your team this summer and feeling so proud and in love with all of you. And, and it was mm-hmm. just really a beautiful moment to see how accepting they are. And, and it's almost sad to realize that that hasn't always been the case. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that that's probably the most important thing about coming out and about having people come out is that gay doesn't always have to be talked about in a heavy sense, like, oh, I had to come out or, oh, this is my struggle story. Actually, we're just living our lives. I'm just Mm. living my life. I am gay, but I'm also a soccer player who wants to play in the World Cup. And this is the way that I look. And then Ashlyn Harris looks different and Kelly O'Hara looks different and Ali Krieger looks different and Tierna Davidson. It's like all of these things just help to normalize. So then gay is just sort of a normal part of our society. It's not like, oh, this is that person and they're gay. It's just like, you already know that they're gay because it's just out, it's accepted, and it's normal. Yeah. Of course, Megan Rapinoe kissed her girlfriend after the game. Of course. (laughs) What else would she do? Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what goes through your head before you hit a free kick. So this week, you hit a vicious bending kick over the wall of defenders and into the corner of the goal. And it was a stunning strike 
that has since gone viral. I'm a lifelong soccer player and fan, and take me inside your head as you're standing over the ball getting ready to kick. What are you thinking before you hit that free kick against Japan? Kind of immediately, the calculations start to go. It's like, where's the free kick on the field? How far out is it? How wide is it? Then the wall starts to get set up, and you're seeing how they're setting up. You're seeing where the goalkeeper is trying to pick what side you're going to go to, you know, kind of figuring out who's going to take it. This one was a little bit more central. So I was kind of talking to Sam Mewis, my teammate, maybe it would be better if they leave a gap. If you just smash it, she has the ability to, you know, rip the ball through the net. So I was thinking that might be the better option, but sort of finally settled on, okay, I'm going to take it. And then at that point, it's just trusting all the practice and technique, trying to keep the ball down obviously um, not sky it into the stands and just get enough on it to, to get away from the goalkeeper. Those are so hard for the goalkeeper, especially central like that. You can't really cheat right away, but if you're able to get the ball up and over the wall, then it has a pretty, pretty good chance to go in and um, to be able to celebrate that one right in front of the American outlaws. uh was pretty special. Well, it was far from your first big free kick goal. I mean, you hit the penalty kick that won the world cup last summer you seem yeah. <laughs> calm, but that was uh, a lot of pressure. I mean, you talked about sort of looking at the angles and setting it up, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you hit a ball like that, I kind of imagine that it's just sort of all silence and angels singing or something before the ball is struck. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, <laughs> I have a, a calmness before. I mean, I, I really don't stress too much in those moments. I feel like obviously they're big pressure moments, but I always take myself to the logical end, you know, even leading up to the World Cup, we we had practiced penalties for months and months and months. And it's like the very worst thing that could happen is that, you know, I'm taking the last penalty in the game and it's an overtime and I miss and we lose the World Cup. Like that's the very worst thing that can happen. So I was just like, okay, that's the worst worst (laughs) that can happen. So, you know, might as well just think about it, take it to its logical end, have a feel about it, and then sort of move on. All you can do is step up there and try to be confident. And I always feel like the goalkeeper is more nervous than I am. You know, I'm 34. This is my third (laughs) World Cup. I've been in three World Cup finals. I've been in penalty shootouts. I've won them. I've lost them. I've made penalties. I've missed penalties. So I kind of just get up there and uh, try to stay calm. Well, you said you're 34. You've done a lot. You've been a lot of places. How do you stay motivated? I mean, I I love the game, to be honest. It's never difficult for me to go out and, you know, pull on the USA jersey and play for my country. Training on my own is a little bit more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that can be, uh, you know, in need of a little extra motivation. Um, But you know, it's, it's also like, this is what I get to do for, for my job. Um, and I'm very, very lucky to be able to do that and have so much support around me, obviously with my club team, Tacoma rain, um, in Seattle and the national team, uh, you know, we're put in a position where pretty much most, most of what we have to focus on is on the field. So I feel very lucky to be able to have that job. Well, we know you have the Olympics to look forward to and your club season, as you just mentioned, uh, coronavirus notwithstanding. But mm-hmm. what else are you excited about? What are you working on? What are you looking forward to? Oh, gosh, a lot a lot to be excited about. Um, I'm working on a book right now Wow, that's going to be coming out next fall, probably next uh, November or so. So very excited to share that with the world. I'm very excited about this lawsuit and and where that will go. If that's trial, then we'll be prepared to go to trial. But I think even more than that, just excited to see what the outcome is and where we can then take it. 
you know, not only as a team, but also for those of us who are a little bit older, we're probably not going to reap many of the benefits of what could come from this lawsuit. So taking that into our normal lives and continuing to use our platform to talk about pay equity and talk about gender discrimination in the workplace. I think we're all very passionate about that and have spent, you know, essentially our whole careers with that kind of over our head. Looking forward to a little bit more downtime eventually. Maybe that's like next year. (laughs) We've been quite busy for the last 18 months or so. I don't know about slowing down, but um, doing some some different things. Um, And then, you know, I have uh, my company, Re-Inc., with Tobin Heath, Kristen Press, and Megan Klingenberg. That's rolling. So that's also a really just incredible, you know, expressive, creative, more artsy way that we can express ourselves and talk about the world and try to break the status quo. And, um, you know, it's similar to what we're doing on the national team. It's similar to what I do personally, but it's in this sort of different realm that allows us to be a little bit more creative and tap into something a little bit different. So looking forward to, you know, having that business grow and really just living life. I feel very, very fortunate and um, privileged to live the life that I do and just trying to continue to use, you know, the platform that I'm very lucky to have to ultimately just make the world a better place. Well, we look forward to rooting you on on the field and checking out all of those fascinating projects you have off the field. March is Women's History Month. And last week we had uh, Stacey Abrams on and we asked her the same question. So for Women's History Month, who is a woman you look to for guidance and inspiration? So many to choose from. Stacey being one of them. I mean, how <laughs> incredible. How incredible is she? Um <laughs> Hopefully she's uh, on the ticket this year, but we'll see. You know, we get asked this question a lot, obviously being, you know, women uh, who are considered inspiring. So for me, it's my mom. Um, You know, I I think as I've gotten older and started to, you know, understand what gender norms are and women in the workplace and, you know, patriarch versus matriarch and all of that, my mom is just such a, a force in the world. I feel like she's kind of just gone about her business in a way that showed me strength to be who I am and to stand up for what I believe in and to always take care of others and, and sort of be that helping hand all while doing it, you know, so gracefully the way that she does. She's always just been such a, a strong influence in my life. And I'm so thankful to have grown up around such strong women. Well, I guess we are all thankful to your mom. Uh, So (laughs) Megan Rapino, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Even on such a strange week, we really couldn't be happier to have you on At Liberty. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Your guys' work is incredible. So thank you for everything you guys are doing. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty and you can see our archive of nearly 90 episodes. Please rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.